Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 71 of Season 5 of Move Around Minute, the daily podcast where we yippee our way through the 1990 Bruce Willis action film Die Hard 2, Die Harder, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today is a very special guest, someone who actually lives close to where they filmed part of this movie in Denver. So uh, welcome to the show, my good friend uh, Todd Liebenau of the Forgotten Filmcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, great to have you. Great to have you. I, I know they changed the name of the the airport since then, but but still, you know, it's it's close. Well, it's it's a totally different airport now. Uh, and you know, watching this movie, I'm I'm unclear as to what scenes were done at the old airport. The old airport was called Stapleton Airport or Stapleton International Airport, and uh, they stopped using that about a, a few months after I moved here, uh, nearly 30 years ago. And since then, it's been Denver International Airport. Maybe that's why they're able to actually film the movie there, because it wasn't being used as an airport. Is that possible? No, it was being used. They might have been, I, I don't know if they had closed parts of it or or what, getting ready, because the, the building of Denver International Airport, I know, was a long process. I mean, even once I moved here, it was well after when they had been planning on opening the airport and got delayed and delayed and delayed. The legend always going around was that it was the baggage system. They had this this intricate automated sort of baggage system that sorted things and all that. And they kept putting test bags through it and they were coming out shredded. And so like, like, were, like, like Cochran? The, yeah, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I when I was watching this the other night, I did uh, as I was watching that scene, I was like, oh yeah, I could that could have been the uh, the baggage system at uh, at DIA, but yeah, no, I mean things have been running smoothly now for for nearly thirty years at at Denver International Airport, and uh, you know, it's uh, for a long time it was I, I I was very used to that place because I used to travel a lot for my job. I don't anymore. But um, I was in there every couple of weeks, so uh, I, I used to know that airport very, very well. Oh, wow. Okay, great. So Minute 71 begins with the pilot getting surprised, and it ends with a shot of a pilotless plane. So we ended things on Friday with, uh, you know, Stuart pretending to be the tower and giving orders to FM1. And the pilot uh, responded that uh, these are contrary to our orders. We're supposed to land on runway one, where we are to be met by representatives of your Justice Department. And as he's talking, we can see in the background, uh, Esperanza showing up, you know, with a gun in hand. And he starts talking to the captain and goes, Captain, please tell the tower you will proceed as ordered. So, first of all, why is he speaking English? Don't you think you should have spoken to him in Spanish? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's a good question i mean but i mean franco nero i mean he's what is he italian he's italian but he what but he did he did speak to the corporal in in spanish yeah see franco nero is one of those guys that plays all kinds of different uh ethnicities and and various other things when i when i think franco nero i think uh he's in the the first of the canon ninja movies enter the ninja and uh, he's in a movie I covered on my podcast called The Visitor, where he plays this like Jesus-like figure. In fact, I think we I, I had Jason Soto and Nolan on that show, and we started just by the end of the show, we were just referring to Franco Nero's character as Space Jesus, because that's basically what he is in that movie. 
interested. I don't think I've ever seen that movie. I, I don't think I ever desired to see Is it worth seeing? The Visitor is worth seeing just because it's one of those where you'll watch it and go, I cannot believe that a movie this crazy ever got made. Okay, so in other words, I'm not going to like it. <laughs> the, the chances <laughs> are slim. It depends on your frame of mind, I guess. That's true. So, so in other words, I should I should probably you know get a little drunk, uh, smoke a little pot, uh, you know, and all the things that I never have done in my life, seriously, and and <laughs> and try to watch a movie about space no, Jesus. Okay. <laughs> nor have I, even even though uh, you know, pot is legal in Colorado and has been some for some time. Uh, not something I I'm <laughs> I indulge in myself. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. that. That makes a lot of sense. But wait, but does that mean you liked the movie when you saw it, even though you you weren't uh, on something at the time? Uh well, like I said, the visitor is all about frame of mind. So like as a how did you get strong? How did you get word, into I mean, that I, frame of mind? Let's say, that maybe maybe I'll ask it that way. <laughs> Let's just say I knew that it was a kind of notoriously crazy movie to start with. So I just was already in the right frame of mind. Okay. For it. All right. That's fair. That's fair. And uh, come on, if you had Jason with you, so, you know, that, that makes it a little easier. <laughs> and I suppose, I suppose you could say those, you know, th those, uh, enhancing substances are just in the air out here in, in Colorado. I mean, certain places that you, that you drive, I mean, you can smell it. I mean, my wife works right across the street from a building where they grow the stuff, and you can smell that thing. Uh, there, there's a section of town you drive through it, and, and it's referred to as the Green Mile. Ooh. Because that's where all the pot shops are. And there's, there's no John Coffee there, you're saying? No. no. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. No interesting. Mr. Jingles. Nope. <laughs> all right. That, that, that sounds uh, interesting. So, yeah. Um, Franco Nero. Yes, he's, he's multiple. He has... Uh, in many movies, he's different ethnicities. Um, the 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 one that to me always stood out besides this movie with him in it is uh, Twenty One Hours in Munich, where he plays uh, you know uh, an Arab terrorist. So then, then again, you know, completely uh, different ethnicity with uh, yeah, with yeah. Him. But for me, this has always been the movie that I've, I've seen him. You know, when I think of Franco Nero, the first thing I think of is Die Hard Two. So, but that's me. But and that's also probably one of the reasons why I'm doing this movie minute by minute. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, it's the same reason that if someone were to say William Sadler, this is the first movie I would think of, not you know Bill and Ted or. Oh, uh, see, I think Bill and Ted. Right. Okay, William I Sadler understand that. First. I think, most people. I do. think his his performance's death is just fantastic, and I think I mean I like him in this movie. I think that that uh, you know he's he's solid the the problem is and my son said this to me when we were watching this the other night because I, I i sat my son down i was like i gotta rewatch die hard 2 for podcast. i gotta what do you mean gotta, a long I time. Want to. <laughs> well, <laughs> you were not forced i've got a schedule <laughs> i was like i was like i'm recording these episodes you know we've got to watch this on on friday night he was like okay all right and uh, and part of that is because I've only ever watched Die Hard one with him. I've been meaning to get to the rest. I was like, okay, come on, this is the time we got to watch Die Hard two. And um, so we're watching it. When it was over, he said, "You know, the bad guys in this movie weren't as good." And it's just like, well, yeah, but part of that is because you're comparing them to Alan. That's Rutgers, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> the you know William Sadler has this, and Franco Nero they they have the unenviable task of coming between 
Alan Rickman and Jeremy Burnt. Irons. Who wants that job, really? I mean, well, apparently on. William Sadler did, but you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's why Jay, Jay, Jay loves him because he gets to talk about uh, you know the naked Tai Chi, but you know that's just yeah, yes. <laughs> I think that's the thing I remember most about. Well, I, I think that's supposed to be one of the most memorable things you think of about this guy, you know. But so as as uh, Esperanza is is speaking, you know, we see the co-pilot starts looking on in a, with a very worried face, and he sort of shakes his head slightly, sort of you know, motioning to the pilot something, you know. And uh, Esperanza obviously just wants them to to comply now it's also interesting that he just holds the gun on the pilot you know and doesn't doesn't even try to to you know to also somehow cover the co-pilot you know at the same time i guess it's kind of like the it's like the philosophy of you know if you're a terrorist and you've got the president and the vice president there who are you going to point the gun at right yeah but as soon as you shoot the president nobody cares about but as soon as you shoot the president the vice president becomes president so you've created a monster well, that's that's when you move the gun, I guess. Yes, very quick, I guess. You know, but uh, yeah. And then the, the the captain then looks back at the co-pilot, and the two of them look back at each other, and they're you can see in their eyes that they're debating what to do. And this is like a great point in a movie where they just change the music and they give us this really tense music. You know, like the, these two people have have these very you know, uh, definitive decision that they need to make is what are they going to do? Are they going to listen to this terrorist that somehow, you know, overpowered the corporal in the back or, you know, try and do something. And then we, we see the captain yeah. just makes a quick decision and he goes, Roger Dulles proceeding to runway one five. And then. Which that line always throws me because it sounds like, at least to my ears, it sounds like he says Dallas and not. Yeah, you're not the first person to uh, say this. Confused me when I was. You're not the first anyway. person uh, on this podcast to say that they've been confused between Dallas and Dallas. So you know, you're 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 in good, you're in good company. Oh yeah, I used it. to before I actually flew through Dallas Airport. I used to you know get the two mixed up just because people say the name and I'm like Dallas. What Washington D.C. Dallas? That doesn't make sense. Um, but yeah, Dallas Airport. I my. Apologies to the folks at Dulles Airport, but in all of my travels, I've been in hundreds of different airports, but I, it was always miserable flying into Dulles <laughs> Airport. I thought it was one of the most poorly run airports I'd ever. Well, been come on, you got life. you got Trudeau there. What do you expect? And and Lorenzo, <laughs> you, you should have expected yeah, for something yeah. a little better. Yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and and then while the pilot is speaking, you see him once again. I the co-pilot, and the co-pilot then uh, you know moves into action to try and disarm Esperanza. But what's funny is, is you don't even see the, the co-pilot take off his his seatbelt when he's trying to do that. You know, he just like jumps up. And mm. uh, yeah, I guess I guess maybe the pilot and co-pilot are flying without seatbelts because of the way that they do this. Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll see a little later. I suppose it's, I mean, it's possible. I mean, aren't there like, I'm, I'm trying to think what comedian, but I'm pretty sure I've heard a comedy routine, of, you know, basically saying, what's the point of a seatbelt on an airplane anyway? Because I mean... If you, know, if you crash, it's pretty much not going to do a whole lot for you. Right, that's true. That's true. And I mean, also the way that the, the co-pilot grabs the gun, he grabs the gun and has it pointed at himself. You know, instead of trying to point it away from himself. 
he like pulls because the gun is on the pilot and he grabs it you know it's, maybe it's the same type of thing you were saying about the president and vice president you know the vice president is pointing the gun away from the president <laughs> yeah well that's the thing that's always gone through my head in scenes like this because there's always you know i mean there's a million movies where someone grabs the gun and they're trying to move it away but you know i always go well if i was in that situation what would i do i think i would probably be having trouble trying to make sure that the barrel of the gun didn't end right. up pointed at my yeah, face. Well, that's, you know? that's the problem that a lot of these people have. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we see that the pilot is struggling to hold the plane in on course at this time also, which, you know, it, it also makes you wonder why is he, you know, having trouble now? Was, was it that the two of them had to hold on to the plane because of the, because of the storm outside, but you, you don't see, you, you don't see them struggling beforehand. But then the pilot has to deal with it himself. Mm, you know, it's not as yeah. if, um, you know, the the actual fact that they're trying to to stop Esperanza, you know, should change the amount of of uh, you know pressure on the inside of holding this plane up, or whatever it is. I mean, in a few seconds, I can understand why that would happen, but for now, it's not. You know, for, then we see an external shot of the plane, and it shows the plane like wobbling a little bit. <laughs> Which is something you th you you think that you'd see in like airplane <laughs> or something like that, you know? That uh, I I don't think that that's very realistic. That the plane would start moving, you know, would be swaying side to side because of everything that's going on here. Mm, I don't know. I guess it depends. I've certainly been on plenty of planes that wobble. Uh, you think they wobbled like this? Like like it, you know? It looks like they're you know waving. You know the. You know the thing with with both sides of the plane. The only time I can think of, I was on one like that. I had I had a flight. It was so ridiculous because I was flying from Colorado Springs to Denver, which is only like sixty miles. So it's it's you know the shortest flight I've ever been on in my life, and so you're flying right along the front range of the mountains. And it was a particularly windy day that day, and the wind was coming right over the mountains, and we were bobbing along like. You know, were you in a normal like, size plane or was it a small it, plane? You know, it was like we were in the water. This was a no, this was a full size, you know, United Airlines. Isn't plane. it easier to drive? Um, and <laughs> well, <laughs> it was, but you know, it, it the type of thing where you're flying from one location and it took you here and then it's got to take you there. And I don't remember the, the science of it. Um, actually, no, I remember this. It was. We had, it was because the guy that I worked for, he was always getting deals on flights and stuff. And so like United was matching the price of another airline. But to do that, we had to go through Colorado oh, okay. Springs. And um, because the other airline was based in Colorado Springs, it was an airline that doesn't exist anymore. It was, I think it was called like Western Pacific Airlines. And the only thing I remember about them was they painted one of their planes with the Simpsons characters once. And it was always like, Ooh, do we get to fly on the Simpsons plane? Uh, but well, yeah, that, that's good for you. Ago. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you'd rather the Muppets, but Simpsons is, is still good for you. Yes. No, I'd much rather fl fly on the Muppets plane though. That would be kind of scary. Cause you know, like typically, uh, you know, when you see like, the control room type of stuff when it comes to the Muppets, like, you know, in the Muppet movie, the projection room, it's the Swedish chef running the projector and he's going, oh, the blip, 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 and, all, and, and it's like, you know, I don't, wouldn't want the Swedish chef uh, flying yeah, okay. the plane. I can, I can understand that, tower, that, that so. concern. Yeah. You know, then, then the plane for sure would be wobbling like it does here. You know, maybe, maybe mm -hmm. the pilot here is the Swedish chef, 
in disguise. <laughs> well, that goes back to our original question about what language they're speaking. That takes us into a whole other dimension here, Rob. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, like, I understand why the pilot is answering on the radio in English. That makes sense. But, you know, why, um, you know, why he talks to Esperanza and Esperanza talks to him in English, it, I guess it's for us. Yes. You know, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've heard the old joke, you know, uh, what do you call someone who speaks three languages? Trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks two langu languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. Um, so <laughs> that, that, that's the way we are. <laughs> what can I tell you? Mm -hmm. um, so we, we see the, the co-pilot, uh, you know, struggling at a certain point. It looks like he might have the upper hand, but then the, the gun goes off. And, you know, good shot. He kills him in one shot. And then the second shot takes out the window. But if you notice, he doesn't raise the gun at all. He, the, it's like two successive shots, one after the mm -hmm. other, in the same direction. And it's yeah. downwards, you know, towards his stomach, basically. So I don't really know how that happens. Maybe a Movie magic. Off it's a magic bullet. <laughs> no, but the seatbelt's behind him because <laughs> he's not wearing it. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> But this but that, raises that, a question a for point. me, because, this, again, this, I, I know nothing about the science of this. I have never been on an airplane where a window gets shot out, nor do I ever want to be. But it's always portrayed in movies that, like, you blast out a window, and then suddenly everything starts getting sucked out of the out of the window. It's very dramatic. And that we will, we will get there. We will get there. We will get there. Patience, patience, patience. <laughs> All right. Mythbusters. Okay. Yeah, I'm waiting for we're we're gonna get there. We are definitely gonna get. You want to talk about that now, or should we wait until till we finish talking about the minute? What, what do you What do you? No, want? it's your it's your show, man. You do what you want. <laughs> All right. So after we hear this this shot, so then the, the the shot changes, and you know we see them in the church, and you know Stewart and Thompson, you know react because the the this like really loud sound is you know they they hear this loud screeching sound you know, in their earpieces. Then we see Miller turn around and then we see Garber who's actually listening uh, attentively. Garber isn't phased by it at all. And then we get another shot of, of Trudeau, uh, you know, him getting a little confused about the whole thing. Then we just hear like this loud static. And then Stuart quickly responds and goes, Foxtrot Michael one, come in, please. But he doesn't get a response. And then the, the pilot, looks over at Esperanza and, as we said before, speaks to him in English and says, what are you going to do now? You're going to shoot me? So who will fly the plane? Um, and now, you know, it, it's pretty interesting because here the, the pilot makes a very big assumption that, you know, this military leader of his country, you know, doesn't know how to fly. You, you'd think... Mm -hmm. I mean, it, again, it, it could go either way. You know, uh, it's there are leaders, there are military leaders who know how to fly, and there are those who don't. Okay, but his assumption is, is that for sure this guy doesn't know how to fly, and therefore he needs him. And, you know, the it's, it's a little bit of a problem for him because, uh, you know, <laughs> the response he gets from Esperanza is, is, don't worry about it. It's not your problem, <laughs> which is actually a great response because basically, you know, you're dead. You're not going to worry about it at all. <laughs> I guess and, you'd kind of think he might know if he was a pilot or not. I mean, because 
maybe he has wings. Maybe he has wings on his leader. on his military and all the military, uh, you know, medals and stuff like that. He'd have like wings that he knows how to fly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but I mean. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily assume that any military leader would. I guess it would depend on what branch of the military they were in or, a, you know, a leader for that matter. I mean, like I was going through it in my mind when you were thinking or saying that. And I thought, I mean, like thinking of our own presidents and stuff, the, the, the first came to mind. I'm pretty sure George Bush was a pilot. Yes, he so was. That's all both, I can think both, of. Both George uh, Bushes were pilots, actually. But the father and the son were both pilots. So if they were then, in this but, situation, they would be able to deal with this, and just like just like Harrison Ford, you know, in in Air Force One, um, yeah. Reagan and Bill okay, Pullman but, in, in Independence and Bill Pullman, Bill Pullman, right? <laughs> but but then the question is, is how many of the others were were, you know, were in the military? And I mean, like Eisenhower was in the military, but he was, you know, a, a ground, uh, you know, commander. And, Grant was, you know, he and was then, totally a pilot. Well, <laughs> right. I was going to say that if you go back far enough, most of them didn't even know what a what a plane is. So yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, JFK was a pilot. Uh, no, sorry, JFK. Uh, Wait, was JFK? He was, in a, he was on a boat. He was on a boat. T one oh nine. No, he was on a boat. Yeah. His brother was a pilot. The question is, I wonder if he knew how to fly. Hmm. Not not that that would have helped him either, but hmm. yeah, I'm not sure about that. But you're right. It it all depends on on what type of you know from what branch of service uh, the the commander is from. But we don't know about that about Esperanza. So, but the idea that he automatically assumes, you know, it's 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 a very strange comment for the pilot to say something like that, basically saying, you know, you need me, and the answer is is no, no, right, <laughs> and that's it. And we see yeah. like a lot of like ice and snow flying around in the cockpit. Which we'll we'll get to in a second, and then Esperanza very easily pulls him out of the seat. You know, again, no seatbelt, <laughs> and just throws his body on <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> and then the shark goes back to Stuart, who is still concerned, and once again says, "Michael, one, do you copy?" And you can hear concern in his voice because he basically is saying to himself, "What did I get myself into?" <laughs> <laughs> this guy's going to crash yeah. and, you know, nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to be able to do anything here and stuff like that. And then, yeah. and then we get, he had everything very carefully planned and now it's not going the way. He and and this, was, you can't yeah. even blame on McLean. You know, right. <laughs> this is, I guess, uh, Esperanza's stupidity, the way that he did this, you know, shooting off a gun in a, in a plane. Don't know. Yeah. You don't do That's that. Don't do that. And then the minute finishes off with a shot of the plane uh, in the air, once again, you know, wobbling a little bit because now there's no pilot as opposed to a pilot trying to hold on to the, hold on to the <laughs> stick. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, on, on the commentary, it's very interesting that um, Rennie Harlan mentions that this these scenes in the cockpit were the last ones that were filmed. And they filmed them in April of 1990. And he said that the that, oh, yeah, wow. and the movie came out in July, so we're just talking two and a half months later. Yeah, and he was talking about the fact that he was under so much pressure to get the movie in because he was also working on Fort Fairlane at the same time and stuff like that. And and he just remembers that these scenes were the final scenes of the movie, and it was all done on a soundstage. Obviously, you know, it wasn't done in in a real plane flying with a uh, bullet hole in the windshield. 
So let, let's move back a little bit and go back to what we were talking about, what we mentioned a little bit earlier. Okay, what what do you know about cabin pressurization in an airplane? Nothing, <laughs> except that it's a thing. Okay, so anyone who's been on an airplane knows that that they always talk about the fact that the cabin has been mm. pressurized, right? So the pressurization, it's a process in which conditioned air is pumped into the cabin of an aircraft or a spacecraft in order to create a safe and comfortable environment for humans flying at higher altitudes. For aircraft, the air is usually bled off from the gas turbine engines as at the compressor stage. And for spacecraft, it's carried in high pressure, often cryogenic tanks. The air is cooled, humidified, and mixed with recirculated air by one or more environmental control systems before it is distributed to the cabin. So basically the idea is to, you know, give you enough air in the in in the airplane that that you uh, feel that you're that you're not at a high altitude. We all know that if you go climbing or if you go to Peru and stuff like that, they say, or probably even close to you in the Rockies, yep. you know, if you get high enough, they say, you know, the air is thinner uh, at the higher you get, stuff like that. And obviously, oh, yeah. when you're in an airplane, it's going to be even higher, and that that's even more dangerous. So when when do you think they started uh, creating pressurization systems in airplanes? Okay. Mm. They, they started flying around 1910, a little before, you know, when, when do you think people started realizing that, wait a second, if we want to go higher, we need to have uh, pressurized cabins? Mm, boy, I don't know, but I mean, I'm thinking maybe following the war, the World War II era, something like that. Okay, so so you're, you're sort of right with that. I'll... I'll give you a little bit of, I'll give you half a point for that one. So they started uh, creating pressurized systems in the 20s and 30s, but only in the 40s were commercial aircrafts sure. uh, created with uh, pressurized cap uh, cabins and stuff like that. Um, usually if you're flying over 10,000 feet, that's when you need to start having some sort of uh, pressurization. And the adverse effects that you can have is there's, a whole bunch of different physiological problems that can be caused by the low uh, air pressure on on the outside. So some of the things that you can that can happen to you, you can get hypoxia, okay, which basically means you don't have enough oxygen going from your lungs to, to your brain. You can get what's known as altitude sickness, which uh, you know basically you'll start hyperventilating, and you know that 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 also will 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 cause you know, a lot of fatigue, nausea, headaches, sleepiness, and uh, they can even cause pulmonary edemas. Then what you have also is what's related to what we're talking about here is decompression sickness, mm -hmm. right? Which is basically bubbles in the bloodstream, which can cause uh, severe problems. And then you have what's known as uh, barotrauma, which uh, is the fact that you get like pain uh, in your ears, in like your middle ear, or in your in your stomach, and sometimes even on your teeth, mm. because of the way that uh, you know there's the lack of of pressure. Now in spacecraft, it's a little different because in, the Russians would actually use a, a mixture of nitrogen and oxygen for their aircraft, and then uh, the for the U.S. in the Mercury, Mercury Gemini, and Apollo spacecraft. They used 100% pure oxygen, which unfortunately is what caused the, the problem that, you know, the three uh, Apollo 1 astronauts were killed in the oh, test yeah. on the ground because they were mm -hmm. using 
they're using 100% uh, oxygen on the ground. Um, after that, they started using nitrogen oxygen mix, mixes when they were using when they were doing it on the ground. But in space, they continued using the 100% the oxygen. All right. So now we'll get to the whole idea of the myths. Okay. So first of all, you know we have what's known as explosive decompression and rapid de decompression. Explosive decompression, something that occurs in less than 0.1 to 0.5 seconds. You have a change in cabin pressure that's faster than your lungs can actually, you know, decompress. And when when this happens, you can get lung trauma. And obviously, there's the danger of uh, unsecured objects that are going to become uh, projectiles because of the explosive force, which they can liken to a bomb detonation. Uh -huh. All right. This is why many military pilots. You know, you see in movies and stuff like that, that they, they have oxygen masks on for that very reason. Mm, so that yeah. they don't have to worry about, about uh, any type of explosive decompression. And then you have rapid decompression, which uh, takes longer. And the, you still have the risk of lung damage, but uh, it's, it's less of a risk than what you would have in an explosive uh, decompression. There are actually only two cases uh, that were con that are two confirmed cases of people being sucked out of airplanes, you know, because of decompression. I mean, we see in mm. movies that it happens all the time. You know, oh, in yeah. movies, it's very, you know, someone, you know, you think that the, the hole here that we see in the windshield will, uh, you know, have someone get sucked out, but that doesn't happen, in, at least not here. Mm. And so there's only been two cases of it. And, and the first one happened in 1973 where uh, a one of the engines on a plane broke off and struck a window. And the passenger who was sitting at that window got sucked out, even though people were trying to, to, to hold him in. And they, they ended up finding the body uh, two years later. Oh, you know, they, it took a really long time before they found that body. Right? Then the second incident that happened was on April 17th, 2018, where there was a Southwest Airlines flight, which also had the same issue, where there was a engine that was partially blown through the window, and a woman was was uh, was sucked through, but only halfway, and the passengers were able to actually pull her back inside, but because of all the injuries that she received from it, she she didn't make it in the end. Mm. And in both of those cases, those were the only people that that were killed in the the actual uh, you know incident now you mentioned mythbusters right so um then the question is is okay it will a bullet hole in a window actually cause explosive decompression so in 2004 myth mythbusters examined whether explosive decompression occurs when a bullet is fired through the fuselage of an airplane uh by way of several tests using a decommissioned pressurized dc-9 and what what they found was it that one shot did not have any effect, and it it took uh, actual explosives in order to cause explosive uh, decompression. Okay, hmm. meaning meaning that basically the planes are designed so that people will not be blown out because of that. Well, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would hope so. That's right. And then we have other myths in in uh, movies about what happens when you're when you are decompression 
uh, you know, you have, you have the, the sci-fi ones where people are on different planets and stuff like that, and they basically explode. A, a perfect example of that is uh, Total Recall or Outland, you know, that when people are outside, yeah. then, then their bodies will start boiling and eventually, uh, you know, explode. According to what scientists believe, that will not actually happen. You basically will just run out of air really quickly and die. You know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's more what we see in the Guardians of the Galaxy where people are just floating around in space. Oh, yeah. You know. They become popsicles. Yes. And then uh, the we talked before about uh, barrel trauma, you know, where which which is mostly related to um, the bends, you know, getting uh, going too fast up, uh, you know, climbing too fast up from from, uh, you know, from the decompression from mm. you know from a lower level of of the the ocean so there there are two movies that actually show uh fictional accounts of what would happen so one of them is deep star six which you might have seen because it probably maybe that's a I've forgotten maybe that's a forgotten film from 1989 if i remember correctly isn't that the, that's the one with peter weller isn't it or is that i was gonna I say so. i think is leviathan the one with peter weller oh maybe there were three movies that were all like kind of deep sea horror sci-fi ish type of things. Of course the abyss was the the big one. And yeah. then Leviathan and Deep Star Six, all right in that same kind of time frame. Right. Okay. So Leviathan was Peter Weller. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, this this one was uh, Greg Evigan. And uh Miguel Ferrer actually Ferrer have, was there. I have a poster Matt McCoy. I have a poster for uh Deep Star Six somewhere here in my basement. I used to <laughs> You know, I would go to the video store and buy all their posters for a dollar each when they were done with them, and I'd pick up everything. And so, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure I've got still got a Deep Star Six poster down here. <laughs> it's cool. It's got this big, this big uh, scuba suit ripped in half yes. on the on the poster. Yeah. And do do you know what the other movie is that 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 shows uh, what happens when someone is decompressed too quickly? Any guess? It's from 1989. Are we, are we thinking of License to Kill. You are thinking correctly. <laughs> license to Kill. Yes, License to yeah. Kill. James Bond. <laughs> You know, when uh, yeah, Anthony Zerby, yeah, that's right. When when they put him in a decompression chamber with all the money that they think he stole, and then you know, they you know, Robert, Robert Davi, you know, uh, from Die Hard One, uh, you know, breaks the uh, the the pipe, it cuts the pipe with an axe. You've got both Agent Johnsons, both that's Agent right. Johnsons are in license. That's right, no relation, and. <laughs> and then Anthony Zerby guy one's a bad guy in license. That's right. And then Anthony Zerby just explodes and then he tells him to go you know clean the money, go launder it. <laughs> so yeah. I've always thought that is that is one of the I mean maybe even the worst death in the whole James Bond series. It's very I mean, possible. That one and and Kananga in uh, Live and Let Die are are right up there one and two, I think. True. <laughs> That's true, and and I, I and wasn't when we're talking about someone being sucked out of an airplane, wasn't Goldfinger sucked out of the airplane? Yeah. Ah, oh, you might be right. He was. He was. He was. He oh, was. He I was. remember. You you don't have to remember. I I, I remember. <laughs> yes, Goldfinger was there. All right. So yeah, that's what we have about decompressions and cabin pressure and stuff like that. So uh, Todd, do you have anything else for this minute before we get into the script? I was gonna throw out just how red this scene is. <laughs> You know, the scenes on the airplane in the airplane cockpit are so red, which is kind of appropriate given Franco Nero, because, you know, Franco Nero has certainly been in more than his fair share of, you know, Italian, Giallo, that type of film. 
and you know interesting colored lighting is a hallmark of those type of films so yeah. it's kind of appropriate okay that's fair all right so the the, the script is is pretty much the same there's a few slight discrepancies so it says that the the pilot uh as he's talking stops he sees esperanza who has come into the cockpit holding the corporal's pistol and then the the dialogue is exactly the same and then it says suddenly the copilot leaps for esperanza esperanza whirls shoots twice one shot kills him but one shatters one of the side window panels and wind and snow thunder inside like a wall then it, it goes to the traffic control and it says everyone has reacted to the shot in noise and now another shot and then it goes back to esperanza's plane and it says tilt up from the pilot's body on the floor, already flecked with snow. So, you know, there's no dialogue there about what are you going to do? You know, how, how are you going to fly the plane without me? Mm, yeah. So, yeah. So every Monday we have a segment called McLean Monday, where my guests will give their top five Bruce Willis performances. Uh, so what have you got for us, Todd? Start with your number five and work your way up. Mm, okay. This was very tough. Um, I don't make these easy. Number five, I went with, Oh, I know. Number five, I went with Pulp Fiction. Um, number four, The Fifth Element. I really enjoy The Fifth Element. Uh, number three, Unbreakable. Number two, Armageddon. I think it's just such a classic Bruce Willis type of role. <laughs> and then number one, you said I could only pick one Die Hard. So I just said the original Die Hard. But I mean, for me, it's it's kind of the whole thing. What, even, yeah, even five? So. You would put five on that list? Well, no, but I mean, I'd, I'd put definitely one, definitely three. I mean, I probably would have had three in, you know, in the, somewhere here, you know, if I could pick more than one diehard. So one and three, definitely. And two is. is okay, so I, sh I should be happy that I was, that, that, that I, that I stopped you from doing that. <laughs> Give a little more diversity. Yeah, no, five would not have. Been. <laughs> exactly. All right. Great. So, uh, Todd, why don't you tell people where they can find Todd Liebenau? Well, uh, my blog and my podcast, you can find those things over at ForgottenFilmCast.wordpress.com. Uh, the podcast, we, uh, we're releasing episodes pretty much every week, um, and uh, we always cover a film that is kind of off the radar, the type of film that people don't talk about anymore, so... Yeah, check those out. I'm on Twitter at Forgotten Films. That's Films with a Z. So, yeah, come check out my stuff. All right. And while you're doing that, you can go rate, review, and subscribe to any podcast you might be using to listen to the show. You can find me very simply just by doing a search for Move Rob Minute. You can find me on Facebook, you can find me on Twitter, or you can find me on my website, moverobminute.com. So, until tomorrow, yippee ki yay. Yippee ki yay. If you're fond of sand dunes and salty air, quaint little